You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. Here's a stadium achievement for you as we begin the new year. It has nothing to do with building a stadium, designing a stadium, or maintaining it, but it has everything to do with the journey. Hockey lover Rob Suggett took a journey to 30 NHL arenas in 30 days, and Rob will contrast the differences between the newer NHL markets and the original six teams. It's the 103rd Rose Bowl game in Pasadena. Rose Bowl CEO Daryl Dunn shows us what's new at the granddaddy of all bowl games. We'll view stadiums through the lens of a photographer, Brad Mangin, who's been photographing stadiums and the action taking place inside them for decades. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran tells us how several Major League Baseball parks are converting their fields for college football bowl games. But first, the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, could this be it? The final game at Qualcomm Stadium? When the Chargers host the Chiefs Sunday, many believe it is the team's last one in San Diego. Owner Dean Spanos is contemplating a move north to Los Angeles. The Chargers have played at Qualcomm since 1967 when they opened with a win over the Boston Patriots. It was then known as San Diego Stadium and later Jack Murphy Stadium. Winter winds have torn some of the outer panels off of U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. 50-mile-per-hour wind gusts loosened the metal panels that fell to the ground. It is the second time the panels have come loose due to high winds. All repairs are expected to be complete before the Vikings close out their first season in the new venue as they host the Bears on Sunday. Well, the transformation is nearly complete at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. The home of baseball's Cardinals is now a hockey venue as the Blues play host to the Blackhawks in Monday's ninth Winter Classic. Bush Stadium joins Wrigley Field, Fenway Park, Citizens Bank Park, and Nationals Park as Major League Stadiums to host the Winter Classic event. Dodger Stadium, Yankee Stadium, and Coors Field have also hosted outdoor hockey. And despite lingering legal battles, the Golden State Warriors are expected to break ground next month on their new 18,000-seat arena. The venue will be built in the Mission Bay neighborhood of San Francisco. Local groups have challenged the construction of the new venue, saying it will invite major traffic issues to the area. The Warriors' current home, Oracle Arena, opened in 1966 and is the oldest venue in the NBA. Bill, that is the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Every person has a dream in life, and you are about to meet a gentleman who has a wonderful dream, and he has fulfilled it. His name is Rob Suggett. He is a Canadian who lives in Edmonton, Alberta, and we're going to head up across the border and visit with Rob and learn about the incredible experience that he had visiting 30 National Hockey League arenas in 30 days, a new version of 30 for 30. And Rob, it's great to visit. <laughs> it with you what a wonderful dream why don't we start with how this came about why did you have the desire to do it and then we can get into how you fulfilled it and what you learned on the trip 
Well, sure, Bill. You know, it's obvious to folks, I guess, that I must be a hockey fan, and, and absolutely I'm a hockey fan. And I've been a lifelong supporter of my team here in my town, Edmonton. Uh, before that, when I was growing up, I cheered for a few teams. And I've always liked watching games in other arenas, but I never really got out to many of them. So I'd say before this trip, only seven arenas. And whenever I got a chance to get into another building, another team, and watch them play, I get goosebumps, actually. I just love the feeling. I love the different atmosphere that each of these buildings has, how the fans cheer, how they cheer differently for the team. When you're in Chicago, how they get so loud when they sing the national anthem. All those things thrilled me. And I thought, i got to do a game in every city. And then I took it one step further and said, Let's do them all in a row. And that's what I did. <laughs> what did you run into logistically in trying to make sure that you could fit this together? I presume the first thing you did was you sat down with some kind of master schedule and tried to figure out where everybody was going to be and how much of this you could comfortably build together from a, a travel standpoint. Does that sound right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I was counting down. And, you know, this is a trip I thought about doing for years, probably 10 years when I first thought of it. And then I would plan out the schedule and then I get into the season and I go next year. And I kept saying next year. But of course, this year I finally did it. And last year, the schedules were released in late June. And the day after they were released, I got down and put all the teams out. I looked for nights where there's maybe only two or three games. And then I found the cornerstone points. I also looked at when there'd be three games in a row in California, when there'd be the two Florida teams playing and worked those out. It probably took me 30 to 40 hours to go back and forth. It was like solving a Rubik's Cube. So much trial and error. And when I finally got to game 30 and it all worked out, I was just elated, absolutely elated. Did you notice a difference in terms of the feel of the arenas between hockey being played north of the border as compared to being played in the United States? Yeah, but I wouldn't define it. And that's interesting that you asked me that. And I would have gone into a little bit differently because here in Canada, we think, well, geez, we supply a lot of the hockey talent. We're where hockey's played. Sure. But it's not quite that way. Uh, I got to tell you, the six original six teams, four of which reside in the States, those are hockey cities. You go into Chicago or, or see a game at Madison Square Garden, those are hockey fans. They're, they're as knowledgeable as any hockey fan. I think when you go a little further south, when you get down to Nashville maybe or you get down to Florida, and, and maybe it's not quite the same passion, but I'll tell you, I was really, really impressed and maybe even a bit surprised with some of these southern rinks. Like Nashville blew me away. The fans there are loud, they're knowledgeable, and it was probably one of my favorite arenas of my 30-day trip. So there you go. Very, very interesting. <laughs> what surprises did you encounter along the way? Perhaps some things you did not anticipate. Well, the biggest thing for me in, in most of the Canadian rinks, and again, in, in a number of the solid long-time rinks in the States, like the original six teams, it's all about the hockey. And that's great. It should be all about the hockey. But you get to Nashville, you get to Tampa Bay, you get to Dallas, it's like a party going on. There's like something going on an hour and a half before the game. It's not necessarily tailgating. It's, it's all the shops around there, the bars around there. They hang out a little bit before the game. They go enjoy their hockey game. And sometimes they hang out after. So it's, it's like a six or seven, eight-hour event instead of maybe a three-hour event. That was palatable and more in the States, certainly more than I would experience here in the Canadian arenas. 
most of these cities now, of course, have changed out their buildings, some several times. So we're seeing second and third generation buildings. What difference do you notice between the older buildings of your earlier memory and the modern generation buildings, mostly which you experienced on this trip? <laughs> I would use two terms. They both happen to start with C. And I just thought of it mm. just for the first time you asking that question, Bill. Mm. The older buildings were caves. The new buildings are cathedrals, <laughs> and you, you go to those old buildings, and I did go to the Montreal Forum, and I went to the old Toronto building. No windows, no natural light coming in, their ceiling height was fairly low, and you felt like you were in a cave, and, and really it was just all about enjoying a sports event, a hockey game, and now they build these buildings, and I mean, they're just, they're beautiful, and so you mentioned Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. and I know that underwent a billion dollar renovation, and it shows, mm-hmm. I mean, marble floors, and wood paneling, and Absolutely spectacular, beautiful jumbotron. These new buildings, the jumbotrons they have in these buildings in Denver, the Pepsi Center, it stretched from blue line to blue line. I mean, that's mm. that's hard to imagine. And when you're there, you, you definitely see it and you, and you feel it. Sometimes you're watching the game on the ice, and then you start looking at the screen, and you're mesmerized by the screen. And then two minutes later, you're going, "Hey, I got to get back on the ice and watch the action down there." <laughs> Rob, your trip had a charitable component to it. You tied charity into this uh, because of your own work, certainly. But give the audience and our listeners an overview of the charitable component of this and how it works. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Bill. My company in Canada is a national partner with Make-A-Wish, and everybody knows the great work Make-A-Wish does, granting wishes to kids that uh, really deserve them. And I, when I think about the trip that I was able to take, I'm quite humbled that, that I could do that. But it is not easy for kids that deserve the opportunity, that have life-threatening medical conditions, mm-hmm. to get the opportunity to go see their favorite sport, their favorite athlete, maybe be a pilot for a day, whatever their wish is. And so I built a donation part of my trip and folks should know that all the trip my costs were, were covered by me as they should and so folks could go to my website which is still alive now it's 30 games 30 nights.com and my goal is to raise thirty thousand dollars for make a wish rob congratulations a hearty congratulations on this i'm glad you had so much fun and it had to be great to meet so many wonderful people all over the country and uh, we wish you yeah. well a lot of continued success yeah well thank you very much you're, you're absolutely right i can't get the smile off my face When I'm talking to folks like you about the trip, uh, it just reminds me of how much I thoroughly enjoyed it. It It's a trip of a lifetime. Rob Suggett is our guest, a gentleman who fulfilled a lifetime dream, 30 games in 30 nights and more. We'll be coming back with more of Stadiums USA right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. 
Would there be anybody in America who needs an introduction to the Rose Bowl? I highly doubt it. All of us have considered the Rose Bowl to be a part of our New Year's Day activities for many years. And of course, it is also a home field for the UCLA football team and numerous other events which take place inside that beautiful, beautiful stadium. And we're going to visit with Daryl Dunn, who is the CEO and general manager of the Rose Bowl. We're going to learn something about this living, breathing, very special place in the life that goes on inside of it. Daryl, it is great to visit with you, and I think for many people, you have probably one of the best assignments that you could ever have to go ahead and oversee such a beautiful place. Tell us about it. It is special. Um, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I've drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, the Rose Bowl <laughs> is um, you know, on the National Historic Landmark, one of four stadiums that has a prestigious honor. And, you know, the stadium is now 92 years old. We've just completed, we're just about completed, I should say, a $180 million improvement project to it uh, because we want to ensure that it will breathe and live uh, for future generations. There is a magnificence in the original design which makes it possible to expand and do so pretty comfortably. Uh, I've seen it from my childhood. I always remember it as being very large, but also as a single-deck stadium, the fans are very close to the action. When you're considering, you have well over 90,000 fans in there. Uh, The design is really something very special, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. It's an ellipse. You know, and the architect of the Rose Bowl is um, Myron Hunt, um, and the story goes, before the stadium was built, they played college football about two miles from here um, at Camp of the Caltech, and um, they just did bleachers. And, and what happened, the game was getting more popular and too popular for that uh, particular site. So um, they looked throughout Pasadena, a location that would be appropriate. And at the time, the Arroyo, where we were, it was a junkyard. And they had the architect, Myron Hunt, the Chairman of Rose's president at the time was a gentleman named William Leishman, mm-hmm. who was from Connecticut. And the inspiration for the Rose Bowl was the Yale Bowl. And, you know, that's really where it started. It, and, and, you know, if anybody's been to Yale, it's very similar in that it is also a, a single-deck stadium and, and it's an ellipse. So it sort of starts out shallow and goes a little steeper as it goes up. Uh, but the sight lines are very, very good, and I think it sets us apart than any other stadium that I've ever been to in the world is our setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the San Gabriel Mountains around us, and it pops. Our, our field is usually in very good shape. We put a, a lot of effort into that, and we've been you know, most honored with the great events we've been fortunate enough to host, uh, starting, of course, as you mentioned, uh, with the Rose Bowl game every January 1st. Years ago, as a sports broadcaster, I went to Houston and worked there for a couple of years, and they had a building there called the Summit. It was an indoor arena, but it was the first arena that I ever saw which had television facilities built into it from the ground up. I think that had a tremendous influence on a number of facilities going down the road here, where a lot of stadiums now are featuring a very significant television investment, and I know that the Rose Bowl is one. And it's also very recent. So, uh, if you will, uh, Daryl, take us through what's going on relative to TV. This is kind of in the bowels of the stadium. Most people would never see it, but uh, from what I understand, there's a lot of sophistication and a lot of expense. Really, again, television, that is the engine that really has the most control 
in any kind of sports entertainment arena, period, whether it's stadium or inside. Uh, and really, when we, we again, part of our $180 million is we did some upgrades. We worked very closely um, with ESPN and Fox uh, primarily because they do most of the broadcasting here. And it's just making it really, it really just makes it easier for them um, because when they come in, you know, they got us usually set up from you know, the ground up, and it's very, very laborious and, and it's very expensive for them. So we just made it, you know, a little more customer friendly, if you would. So when they can come in, you can just you know plug in their cables and you know you try you just try to minimize you know, for their camera operators, minimize the intensity that needs to happen typically, because you know they're in and they're out. But because they do come fairly regularly, you know we just try to make it a little bit more comfortable. So when they, when they come and visit us, it's almost like having a guest house for them. Daryl, I think part of your job, a big job for anybody who takes the reins of a facility like this, is about utilization, getting the most utilization possible out of what we know is a great facility. I was brought up in broadcasting by a legendary broadcaster by the name of Sid Collins, who was the voice of the Indianapolis 500, and the old gag was that he only worked one day a year, and I think a lot of people associate the Rose Bowl with simply one day a year, and you certainly want to make sure that is not the case. How do you go about filling the dates and getting the highest degree of involvement that you can for this beautiful stadium? Well, it's a very, very utilized facility. Uh, we have uh, you know, a lot of small events, not just big ones. Um, we have about 100, over 150 events a year here. You know, they range anywhere from a corporate function to uh, we do a lot of filmings, being in Southern California, of course. You know, commercials, movies, television. We have a flea market here that's been here for 46 years. Um, it's just considered uh, one of the most successful flea markets in the world. We usually get fifteen to twenty thousand people at each one. Wow. Um, yeah. So and and then obviously in UCLA moved here in nineteen eighty two. They are oh, besides you know the Rose Bowl game. Those are the anchors. Um, we had seven concerts at our stadium this year, which is the most we ever had. So you know that was, that was very very active from that perspective. And you know, we are looking at other opportunities uh, in the future. Um, music right now it, it seems to be the the biggest growth opportunity uh, going forward, um, but also, you know, anytime, obviously, we want to try to fill dates, but you know, we are in, in a, a residential area, and we need to be balanced on, on how we do things and the impacts, and, and of course, anytime we do anything, it's, you know, our number one responsibility, of course, is public safety, um, and working very, very closely with our law enforcement officials and security and so forth. You know, we want people to have a great experience, but we want them to be a safe, great experience. Well, Daryl Dunn, we thank you very much and congratulate you. A hearty congratulations on everything going on with this beautiful stadium and continued success. Thank you very much. I enjoy being with you. It is a pleasure. Daryl Dunn is the CEO and general manager of the Rose Bowl. Coming up, we will break down the weekend stadium news. Mark Bedoran standing by. He'll step to the plate next right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM. 
at checkout for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. It is time to talk shop once again. We're going to examine the headlines behind stories on the stadium front, and we welcome in Mark Madoran, as always. Mark is the president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. Have you seen it? If you haven't, you are in for a treat. Check it out, stadiumsusa.com. Mark, a few uh, Major League Baseball parks normally in winter hibernation are full of life right now during the college bowl season. Tell us about the makeover for some of these stadiums to host college football. Well, four Major League Baseball stadiums are in use this fall for bowl games uh, of the 40 bowl games being played. Uh, Miami, Arizona, New York's Yankee Stadium, and St. Pete all are hosting games. Except for St. Pete, those stadiums were all built after 1998. That's an important point to remember because when they built those stadiums, they had the idea that they might be hosting football in the fall after baseball season was over. Mm -hmm. Uh, At Yankee Stadium, the field actually fits very well between home plate out to dead center field. So you can imagine it goes from home plate through second base all the way to dead center. In Miami, uh, for the Miami Beach Bowl, the field is actually laid out from third base to right field. So a totally different orientation than it is at Yankee Stadium. So if you're sitting in short right field uh, for the baseball part, you're actually right on the 50-yard line for the Miami Beach Bowl. At Chase Field, they actually convert the field the totally other direction. They run the field from first base toward left field. So if you're sitting on the third base side, again, right behind the third base dugout, you're like at the 30, 40-yard line of that. Chase supplements their seating with temporary bleachers out in the right field area that run from the foul line all the way out to dead center field. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's a a different conversion. They tell me at Chase Field that the conversion takes about 10 days of work, uh, 12 to 16-hour days. So it's no easy task to make that into a football field. The conversion requires removal of the mound, and you have to cover the skin portion of the field with sod. The sod has to match the original so that there's no seams. Um, St. Pete is the only one with an artificial surface, so that's a totally different kind of conversion. The other thing you have to think about in converting a Major League park is that the locker room doesn't work. A Major League Baseball team is 25 guys. A college football team is 100 guys. Yeah. So when they convert it over, a lot of times the college players are changing in places that aren't really the locker room. Like they're using the training rooms and uh, storage areas and other things because <laughs> there just isn't enough room for 100 guys to change. So they have to kind of make do with what they've got. But the excitement of walking out into a facility like Yankee Stadium and seeing a college football game, that that's a tremendous thing to see. Mark, Minute Maid Park, the home of the Houston Astros, is losing its quirky element, uh, something that I think of very fondly because I like the person that it's named after. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, Astros fans will see a different look in the outfield next season. The center field oddity, as I call it, <laughs> uh, called Tails Hill, is going to be removed after 16 years. The change is going to bring the center field fence in and eliminate both the hill 
and the flagpole that was in play in previous years. For center fielders, this is very good news. I talked with a couple of guys that played out there, and they said they absolutely hated that place because they were not very comfortable with the hill because it was very steep, and they were concerned about slipping and falling. But they said the biggest fear was that flagpole. They're always worried that some blast would take them full bore running into the flagpole. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, most uh, baseball fans are aware that Tails Hill was not the only uh, hill that was included in Major League Baseball over the years, and not the only obstruction ever in play in Major League Baseball. The Tigers had a flagpole, as you remember, in left center field in Old Tiger Stadium up until, you know, 15 years ago. And Old Yankee Stadium, there's a flagpole in dead center field on the warning track. Those old-time ballparks had a lot of quirky elements, but yeah. uh, Tails Hill, unfortunately, for people that really like that kind of an oddity, that's going to be gone and back to a a symmetrical kind of an outfield next year. I also see just ahead of us the door to the Wayback Machine is open. So let's hop in and we'll look at some important dates in stadium and ballpark history. And what do you have for us? This week in 1902, the first ever Rose Bowl game is played at Tournament Park in Pasadena. Mm. Estimated crowd, 8,500 watching Michigan shut out Stanford 49 to nothing. The Rose Bowl itself, the actual current building, was uh, built much later. The Rose Bowl would move to its current location in Pasadena in 1923. Mm -hmm. In 1958, what many consider the greatest pro football game ever, the Baltimore Colts beat the New York Giants in overtime to win the NFL championship. 64,185 packed Yankee Stadium in the Bronx to watch that game that many say turned the tide for football overtaking baseball as our national pastime. And this week in 1967, the L.A. Lakers play their first game ever at the brand-new Forum in Inglewood, 147-118 to whipping of the San Diego Rockets. (laughs) And I know you know that building well, Bill. Yeah, I do, as a matter of fact, Mark. I remember the late Chick Hearn used to broadcast there. Chick liked to broadcast off the floor, so there were no spaces on the floor for broadcasters. We were about a third to halfway up, uh, because that's where Chick felt the game should be uh, reported from for broadcast purposes. And the problems were when you had to get down to the floor to do a stand-up or interview later. That was a mess, believe me. That was a real problem. They used to give you runners, and these guys were big. They must have been football players or something. They'd blast you through the crowd, which was usually going the other way. So that's... (laughs) Well, the famous legendary Chick Hearn, he had his own method, and he's remembered very, very fondly for... What he did for basketball. Oh, yeah. And, of course, uh, he came from the Midwest and started with high school basketball in the state of Illinois and then moved out west and had a great, uh, wonderful reputation when the Lakers headed from Minneapolis out there with him. Well, now it's time to test my stadium knowledge, as if we haven't done that a few times. Let's see how well (laughs) I do on this one, Mark. What do you have? Well, this is an easy one. Which NFL team ranks dead last this year in stadium attendance. Hmm. Is it Jacksonville, San Diego? And you're going to understand why they're not attending because yes. that team's probably not going to be there. Yep. Tampa Bay or Oakland? 
Well, I don't believe it's Oakland because Oakland has been well supported despite all of their stadium issues. Uh, and for some odd reason, I don't think it's Tampa Bay or Jacksonville. I think San Diego stands out like a sore thumb on this. How correct am I, Mark? Unfortunately, Bill, <laughs> you did it again. <laughs> <laughs> the correct answer, surprisingly, is the Oakland Raiders. You're kidding me. I would not no, have believed that. They're ranking dead last. But remember, there have been a lot of stadium issues, yeah. and that stadium is not well-liked by the fans, mm-hmm. although the team is very, very well-supported. Yeah. How about that? Well, Mark, you got me on that one, and uh, we will look forward to seeing you next week. Happy New Year to all, and uh, hope all goes well in the new year for you, Bill. Sounds good, Mark, and you too. Coming up, the view of the stadium through the eyes of a professional photographer. This is a fascinating story. We'll peek behind the lens. That's next right here on SB Nation Radio. A very interesting interview just ahead. We're going to talk about photography and how stadiums factor into photography and actually pictures of stadiums themselves. We're going to reach out to one of the best at it. Brad Mangin is a professional photographer. He is based in the San Francisco Bay Area, but from behind the lens, you can get pictures of fantastic stadiums, and we invite you to go directly to his site you'll find out exactly what i'm talking about here mansionphotography.com brad congratulations on that well thanks for having me on the show yeah i uh i'm a baseball guy and it's something that you really can't fake you know i could talk you or anyone's ear off uh from now till sundown and sunrise tomorrow about the the great game that i love so much and and that i have uh, spent most of my adult life, uh, you know, covering full-time as a photographer. When you go into a baseball park, you view it in part from a photographer's eye. Share some of that with us. How does a baseball park look from a photographer's point of view? Well, it's they're all different. You know, they all have, that's the one great thing, one of the many, many things I love about baseball is baseball fields, you know, the 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 fences are different heights. They're, the outfield uh, dimensions are different. The backgrounds are different. The dugouts are in different spots. Everything is different, and, and the old parks are different than the new parks. As a photographer, I'm looking for backgrounds and for light and, you know, how good or bad the stadium lights are, which how the stadium is oriented uh, in relationship to the sun, which way does it face? How is the light going to change for better or for worse as it gets later in the day and the sun drops low in the sky and you get the long shadows? You know, every park is different. And that's one of the, the fun things when you go to a new park and you don't know really what it's going to be like uh, until you experience it. And it's uh, every park is unique in its own way. And, and some of them are are pretty awful there's not enough photo space in a lot of them compared to where they used to be i i happen to be very lucky working a lot here in the bay area in two very contrasting places the oakland coliseum and at&t park in san francisco and uh, they both are amazing for photographers uh, lots of room 
We're free to move in between innings. The security guards are great. Everyone is super nice. It's the Bay Area. It's California. It's laid back. And it's not uptight East Coast people yelling at us all the time. (laughs) I think I can understand that. You were mentioning lighting. We are seeing a number of stadiums now that are upgrading lighting to the new LED plants. Yeah, Safeco Field is the first one to do that. Let's talk about that. Uh, Did you notice a difference? I have not shot up there yet. Um, I know all about it. I have friends that have been up there. I know it's coming. You know, it's expensive in the short term, but it, it lasts supposed to last for like 50 years or something. And for us, it's supposed to give you a truer color and not pulsating because some of these places, Detroit might be the worst. When we were there for the World Series, the Giants and Tigers in 2012, you shooting with a motor drive and your camera shoots like 10 frames a second. Every frame as you edit your, your take is a different color. And you can really see it on the Fox broadcast when they do the super slow-mo. It's awful. You see that really horrifying flicker of the, of the colors. And, um, mm-hmm. But it is, it is a factor at every place. Take us through a typical day of work. When you get to the stadium, how do you go about making your initial decisions about your job? Every day is different depending on who I'm working for who's pitching, you know, in the old days when it was the Giants, it was, you know, his Bonds in the lineup. Uh, sometimes as he got older, day game after night game, Bonds would not be in the lineup. If Bonds is in the lineup, he was the center of attention at all times. Is the sun out or is it foggy in San Francisco? If it's if it's the sun's out and the light is bad, I would always start on the backlit side. But if it was overcast, then I would go over to first base. It depends what the assignment is. Sometimes my assignment might be to shoot one player and just sit on them. When If it's shortstop, I'm going to be keyed on that shortstop all day, hoping that they dive. You know, sometimes it's general stuff where we need a lot of material of everybody batting from both first base and third base. Sometimes I want to go upstairs and shoot high just so I can shoot down on players and have the grass be my background. It's completely different. I always get there early uh, to shoot batting practice, but more and more, with the newer parks with indoor batting cages, they don't take batting practice hardly at all before day games. Night games, there's still batting practice on the field. But day games, which we used to get BP all the time except for maybe Sundays, now it hardly happens out in the field. What advice would you give an aspiring photographer? I would, uh, I would say if you're a young photographer, find a spouse that has a really good job and, and marry that person and because... <laughs> Photography right now is not a good profession to get into. It's uh, The money is pretty much gone. Sports Illustrated has laid off all their photographers. It's pretty much over. It's very difficult. Um, everyone that's my age, I'm 50 years old, people that did what I did was majored in photojournalism in college and worked at small newspapers and interned and Nowadays, that path doesn't exist. Well, Brad, it's a fascinating topic, photography and not only baseball, but great stadiums. And uh, keep those pictures coming. They're very, very special. Congratulations.
Well, thank you. Every time I get to visit a new stadium, it is a tremendous thrill. I've, I've always, ever since I was a kid, there's something very special about a ballpark, about a baseball stadium. And so, um, you know, everyone needs to keep that dream alive of visiting their favorite parks and, and getting out on the road because it's, it's really a, a special treat. Brad Mangin, our guest, a photographer based in the Bay Area and a man who knows all about stadiums from a photographer's point of view. That's our program for this week. Join us again next week for Stadiums USA on Blog Talk Radio. 